0: Welcome back everyone to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. We're gonna talk about branding today because the philosophy of this podcast is that in business it's all about making a positive impact every day. There's no more important aspect of your business strategy than investing and growing and creating an affinity for your brand. The research bears that out, especially in today's hyper-competitive market, authenticity is key to branding. Uh, Research says that buyers, 88% of them, believe that authenticity is important when deciding what brands they like and support. And nearly 50% say that they would pay more for brands they trust. So the question is, how does any business successfully create that positive affinity, that passion for their brands? And we are fortunate today to have a real passionate expert on branding. Chris Neeland is the co-founder of North America's leading marketing engagement agency, Cult, which specializes in turning everyday customers into brand advocates with cult-like adoration. Think about that. Think about Apple, Disney, Harley-Davidson. It's not just about those big players. Any company has the opportunity to create that cult-like affinity with their prospects and their customers. And Chris is going to tell us how to get there. Chris, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Yeah, thank you very much, Dan. I'm thrilled to be here with you this morning. So I'm curious, uh, Chris, what originally sparked your interest to explore this this whole aspect of cult-like brands? You know, it was probably this trifecta. It's not a short
1: answer, so humor me for a moment. But it was this... um, At the time I was working for a fairly traditional advertising agency on a new business pitch for a large Canadian retailer that was overly fixated on the impact of their retail flyer. They would spend millions and millions of dollars of putting this uh, promotional price and item flyer out. You've seen them, you know, they come in your mailbox or on your doorstep and, um, I was so disenfranchised. It was like, it was a very lucrative piece of business to win. If you can imagine, if you can get a client like that, it's kind of like you're making the donuts every week. This thing has to go out and there's copywriting and art direction and print production and all this kind of stuff. So it would normally be considered like a dream account, a dream project to win because it was lucrative and i i felt like i was literally selling my soul like like i do not want to spend my life pretending like this matters that these things are relevant you know i'm sure there is always some data that suggests some small percentage of the population is heavily dependent upon that sort of stimuli in the marketplace but it was this kind of just moment of like i got to make a decision am i going to just kind of chase the easy dollar or am i going to have some integrity and some you know and and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. focus on something that i think is actually meaningful so while i was having that sort of crisis a different client of mine uh, had come out with a woman's yoga pant to compete with lulu lemon who was sort of this darling at the time and we couldn't We had a comparable product with a better price point, with a larger advertising budget, with permission to discount, and we couldn't steal, beg, borrow uh, a a woman that was going to give up their Lulu's for this other product. And it was one of the early times in my career where I went up against a cult brand and realized that something irrational is going on, that the the Lululemon community was more committed to that product and that brand than most other people. They couldn't be bought or bribed away. And I was fascinated because Lulu had gotten to a billion dollars with zero traditional advertising, no price discounting and charging a premium price point which I was like, how do they do that? Like, that's like, what did they uncover? What sort of secret sauce? And so, and then the third thing was I was reading, uh, I was given a book called The Culting of Brands by a guy named Douglas Atkin, who went on to help Airbnb become Airbnb. But it was the first time the metaphor, the language of a cult, which obviously has normally deep, dark, nefarious, creepy connotations, yeah was used in a way that made me say, ah, there's, there's actually like, if you take the, the connotation and you just focus on the definition, that's what I was witnessing. That's what I was experiencing. And that's what I wanted to, to devote my career to was figuring out how to use those powers for
0: good and not evil. Yeah, an interesting journey with that uh, thinking about emotional connection in there as well. And of course we hear so much about brand and brand strategy today. Uh, So much investment going into that from companies around the world. But Chris, what are some of the most common, significant misperceptions about brand strategy and execution you see out there today?
1: I think that too many people that say they're in the business of building brands are actually in the business of advertising. And that storytelling is sort of viewed as the pinnacle of advertising. And I would argue storytelling's great, but really the pinnacle of branding is customer experience management. And that's different than communications. I I think people that yeah. say they're in branding spend most of their time telling people how great they are. I heard a quote years ago that was says, Don't tell me you're funny, just tell me a joke. And I think good brand marketers are in the joke telling business, not in the telling people they are funny business. And so when you start thinking about just how dollars are deployed, if you're spending most of your time trying to get people aware of you, you're missing the bigger opportunity to kind of get people to fall in love with you or to advocate for you. I like to say, stop creating ads and start creating advocates not because i don't believe that there's you know advertising doesn't have a role to play it's just that the pendulum has swung too far we're spending 300 billion dollars a year in north america on paid media and most people feel more disconnected and disloyal to brands than they ever have so we're taking the wrong prescription for the wrong ailment and so uh, i'm trying to shift people's mentality to say the very best way to grow your business isn't just to get more customers is to get existing customers to come back more often, buy more product at higher margin while they're there. And if you can get them to bring somebody else with them, turn them into a, a, an advocate, then now you're cooking with gas. That's the best way to create uh, awareness. You know, I didn't get onto TikTok because I saw a commercial for TikTok. I got onto TikTok because people that I care about were saying, hey, have you seen this crazy thing that's happening on TikTok? Right, and I think there's just more and more businesses that understand that you don't have to hope that you get word of mouth. You can actually bake it into your experience. Uh, that's what Tesla's done so perfectly. Tesla doesn't spend money on advertising. Just everything Tesla does causes somebody to pull out their phone, take a picture, put it on Instagram, or talk to their
0: neighbor about
1: it. And that's what I think more businesses have a chance to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when you were talking about thinking through the lens of customer experience for an organization, I would think, Chris, that. That's the way, if you really want to get everyone in your company feeling like they're engaged in supporting and playing a part in building that brand, look at it in terms of the experience you're delivering. Because when you're, to your point, when you're just thinking about it as an advertising exercise, now you're just siloing it through some marketing communication teams. But but how do you, this is the way you get the whole company involved, isn't it?
1: I, I, it's 100% the way you get the whole company involved. And you can start looking at... You know, your sales force, you could look at your customer call center, you could look at your frontline employees if you're at retail. Um, You start looking at your affiliates or your distributors. I mean, there's a whole host of people that affect what people's opinions are about your product, service, or customer experience and i'd say don't start advertising until you've maximized all of those touch points if you then have time and money left over god you know great go with god and 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 buy some ads but most people are the opposite They're, they 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 make a big splash they want to be on the super bowl commercial they want to be in the times square they, there's a certain sex appeal that um is tempting. I get it. It's the sweet siren call of, "Hey, mom, look at this thing that I did, and isn't it funny, or isn't it clever, or isn't it emotional?" But that is often very superficial compared to the substantive work. Uh, you know, I love the the example of the Domino's Pizza, the greatest turnaround in in, in fast food history. Uh, when they said hey you know we're tanking and they they gave hundreds of millions of dollars they went and hired the the best hottest agency in North America Crispin Porter at the time they gave him hundreds of millions of dollars and said hey help us we're dying and uh Crispin Porter to their credit gave him a bunch of money back and said hey just go make some better pizza you know like you, you don't need a better commercial right now and um uh, and to to uh, Domino's credit they allowed Crispin to film it. They were remarkably honest and vulnerable about our current pizza sucks. And um, it resulted in a conversation that made the paid media work so much harder because they weren't they weren't trying to, you know, pull the wool over our eyes. They were having it was almost like a documentary more than a commercial.
0: Yeah, that's just about total transparency and back to that authenticity we are talking about earlier. Now When we think about companies out there of different sizes and different target audiences, when it comes to effective branding, what do you see as some of the key differences if you're business-to-business focused versus business-to-consumer focused and and maybe some of the roadblocks uh, that exist there?
1: You know i've sp- I spent a lot of time thinking about this because I kind of talk out of both sides of my mouth on occasion. i On one hand, I like to think that most businesses have elements of cult worthiness or cult capabilityness that they don't take advantage of. And I see more business to business businesses falling short of their potential than I see. B2B businesses. And so in that sense, my first inclination is to tell business to business brand leaders to rise up and live up to your potential. Um, that said, there are certain categories that are so commoditized that people have so you know negative affinity for. Um, you know, negative affinity would be things, something like your electric bill, right? Uh, a utility. Uh, it could be your your, you know, your paper supply company that's dropping off reams of paper, Dunder Mifflin, you know, like you may just not care. And the only way that those businesses can screw up is by making you have to think about them. Like I never want to think about my power company. And the only time I do is when my power doesn't work or when my bill is too high. Otherwise I just want it to exist. Right. So that's the ultimate form of commoditization and maybe arguably in the B two B space, whether it's commercial real estate or maybe certain software solutions, um, it's really hard to get people to give a damn. Except, then I'm. But I constantly find exceptions. Like we worked with a company that was doing software for paralegals, and as an outsider looking in. I'm like this is really unsexy, and then you start talking to the paralegals who are power users of the software, and it's changed their life. they're so much more productive and they got rid of so many mundane tasks that used to make them hate their job and you start to say, "Wow, they actually do have an above average affinity for that tax accountants the same thing and so um i I, I kind of. I lean more towards the first part, which is I do, even if you won't achieve, you know, quote unquote cult-like status, you can reap the benefits or the spoils of having a hyper affinity for what you're selling. And uh, even if you don't, you know, achieve the peak of the mountain, there's it's still a pretty good view from halfway up or three-fourths of the way up. So I think most people should uh, should focus on it. And the single biggest roadblock is people who prematurely dismiss their category as being ineligible, that, that these principles don't apply to me. And so you have to spend a lot of time trying to convince them and show them examples and give them case studies of, of businesses that have actually transcended. Uh, and then maybe they'll say, okay, you've convinced me, let's, let's attempt it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Sometimes as marketers we're our own worst enemies because we set these, these barriers or limitations are self-imposed and, uh, really, um, Drawing inspiration from those other proof points, uh, it's amazing, and you just get a whole new energy behind going out and making what seemed to be the impossible possible. And we started touching on this a few minutes ago, but if you're out there trying to achieve cult-like status for your brand, are there some examples, uh, some some deeper examples of where employees come into play across an organization? Like, what is the role of all of those amazing employees? Uh, that can support these efforts?
1: Yeah. So one of the pleasant surprises when we began our research a decade ago, we were kind of trying to be called it. We want to decode the cult brand genome. We thought of these cult brands as these unique species that were living amongst us and we didn't understand. Was there something in their DNA that was different than the, what we call mediocre businesses or mediocre brands. And one of the things that we stumbled upon was that we, we now call it built from the inside out, but it was this idea that culture and internal engagement was playing an elevated role. And there was this belief that you're not going to get somebody to love you externally more than those who love you internally. And we were seeing the deployment of dollars and the focus of even something like the CMO spending disproportionate amounts of time with internal constituents as opposed to external. I think you go into most companies and the CMO would say, my job is to increase brand awareness amongst potential prospects. And yet, if you go into a cult brand, you'd say, my job is to get people to understand our noble brand purpose, beginning with the people who work here. You know, one of our early um, uh, specimens that we investigated was Zappos and they were, you know, they had 26,000 unsolicited job resumes coming in for about a hundred to 200 call center positions. And they were like, that's weird. Why do you, it, It statistically speaking, it's harder to work at Zappos than it is to get into Harvard. Why for a pretty average paying, you know, job in Vegas. And so, we start we don 't just dismiss that as an anomaly. we start to try to understand what led to that, and is that something that can be replicated, cloned so that other businesses can do it and you know, I was just posting the other day on my blog about um the difference between Airbnb and Uber you know both of them are sort of these pioneers and these innovators of the gig economy. But the reason why Airbnb is successful financially and Uber is struggling, although I heard they just actually had a very profitable uh, quarter, which is uh, an anomaly for them. But it's Airbnb spends a disproportionate amount of internal resources on their hosts. They treat their host as valued internal stakeholders who are, frankly, the product, right? I means their houses and their experience versus Uber, I think, treats their drivers as a commodity, as a necessary evil, as a, as a fulfiller, as part of operations, not part of HR. And so it's all about how little can we pay them and how do we get away with not doing benefits and we have high turnover. And you know Uber drivers are very promiscuous. They often will also drive with Lyft and you just get a different sense of we're all in this together with Airbnb hosts. And it really just has to do with how are people spending their time and money and what do they prioritize? I think Uber is a very culture first uh, kind of organization.
0: Yeah, those are some really compelling, distinct examples. And as a customer, isn't it amazing? It's 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 really hard to fake you know, passion and commitment for the brand and the organization that you represent. I mean, it happens out there, but Chris, I mean, I think you and I could, we, we can see through that and consumers can see through that. I know some companies don't think they can, but it's it is pretty transparent, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. So I come from the technology space. Um, software as a service business is a lot of high growth, competitive markets today. And in in that world, certainly uh, acquiring, but then retaining those customers is so critical. And and there's a lot of attention and investment being spent on nurturing relationships, retaining customers. What do you think? the impact of brands can have on, on creating the most impact for customer loyalty.
1: Well, I, I actually think that you, your, your example there is probably more the exception than the rule. I think that actually most businesses that I interact with spend a, 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 um, a, di- a, a disproportionate amount of their time and energy on acquisition, not on, retention. What I love about SaaS models is they are, even for the investment community to invest in a SaaS company, it's your banking on the subscription and the recurring revenue. Uh, And I think that's an interesting hack. I think Amazon Prime, you know, illustrated the power of that. Netflix illustrates the power of that on the B2C side. But That's actually not how most businesses operate. Most businesses have a very leaky bucket. Most businesses, I remember years ago, we do an event every year called The Gathering, where we try to bring these amazing cult brands to a stage and kind of share their tips and tricks and tools. And I remember Harley Davidson speaking one time, saying that we spend 80% of our discretionary dollars on retention not on acquisition. And and you could see the jaws hitting the floor because most people are the exact opposite. Most people spend 80% on acquisition. And I get up there thinking, guys, there's the answer. If you want to, I, I believe Harley is an indisputably awesome cult brand. If you want to do, if you want to reap the benefits that they enjoy, just do what they do. And the CMO just told you the secret sauce. They spend a lot more money um, on post-purchase experiences and and their their whole loyalty program, it's one of the longest and most successful loyalty programs. Which is the other part of the answer to your question. I think loyalty got bastardized in the early two thousands, late nineteen nineties, as a program, as a as a data warehouse, as an adjudication engine, as a points distributor. And it became about managing this currency, and the airlines, and our grocery stores, and hotels, kind of ruined. What legitimate loyalty is, which is why I like things like Prime, I like things like Starbucks, I like things like Harley, because they remind us that loyalty is not a points based program, uh, but you know the goal is to actually nurture a, a meaningful relationship, and that means that you don't ask for the sale every time you know God help you if you subscribe to Banana Republic or Bed Bath and Beyond, like get, get, get prepared to receive three to four emails a week begging you to buy this, buy this, buy this. Yes. There's no relationship there, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now you've done a lot of brand research and it, if you think about distilling some of uh, the most critical best practice guidelines, principles, what would your advice be based on all that research that you've done?
1: Well, we've tried to distill it down. You know, so we've read um, Jim Collins is good to great. It's kind of one of the most seminal business books of certainly my lifetime. And we just, we liked the simplicity of his approach. He had sort of identified these top performers over I think a decade in the stock market and then tried to reverse engineer what were the commonalities within that group that was different from without of that group. And he came up with these six principles. Uh, We did the same thing. We just didn't use stock performance as our indicator of success. We used uh, used customer engagement, which is manifest into something we now call uh, cult-like attachment. And so uh, we, we have found eight specific things. We write about them in our book. We blog about them. You can find them on our website. The things are not secret the same way that, you know, lo- the, the tips to, you know, to losing weight are not secret. Uh, The hard part is in the application of those principles, not in the knowledge of what the principles are. Some of them are very vogue right now. You take something like brand purpose, you know, Simon Sinek with his start with why, like that's kind of like mandatory reading now for every marketer. But we have found brand purpose going all the way back into the 1800s with Coca-Cola or with John Deere or with Carhartt. And so you start to say, oh, that's interesting. Brand purpose isn't just a modern phenomenon. It is ways that brands, cult brands spend more time talking about what they stand for than what they sell. That's a huge leap of faith. Most businesses think that if they don't include a price or an item or a product or a feature that it's not going to, people aren't going to connect the dots and people aren't going to come in and buy Versus, you know, again, going back to Airbnb, they're one of my favorite examples. You know, they'll they'll run a billboard campaign that says, you know, imagine a world where you can belong anywhere. They'll run a Super Bowl commercial for ninety seconds of a baby walking towards a door, pontificating on is mankind or not, and it's like it's not about this property is on sale this weekend for ninety nine dollars, right? Most people don't have the courage to not talk about. The the transactional aspects of their business, they, and therefore brand purpose remains an elusive thing. But there's some other things that you know some of the more what I call darker arts of cult branding, like the creation of rites and rituals. I mean, if you get to the core of cults, you know the secret handshakes, the the the, the special clothing, the 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 speakeasies, the the the, the hidden meetups you know I, I think one of maybe not one of I, I would go on record saying the greatest marketing campaign of all time dan i'll ask you what what would you say is the academy award winner of greatest marketing campaign of all time not commercial right. it's not like 1984 it's not like the apple stuff it's like something that that transformed the way that we live and
0: operate as a society That's wow kind of a yeah impression. Yeah, that is heavily loaded. Yeah. You know, and I, and I go back and I, you know, and and I keep coming back to Apple, not 1984 specifically, but I think the whole think different and the idea of, um, of really um, recognizing and cherishing, you know, outside the box thinking. So, so that comes to mind um, immediately off the top, because um, it was just a kind of a different approach than a speeds and feeds kind of approach. Chris, what, what sticks out for you?
1: Well, I mean, it's hard to always disagree with Apple. Apple's a multi-trillion dollar company that's been wildly successful. Apple's not in my top five. Um, But my number one is, uh, I'll give you a hint. It is perpetuated 50 to 60 years ago by a mining company of all the least sexy industry. And that's where I tell people if a mining company can create the greatest marketing campaign of all time what what business is ineligible for doing something more creative and it's the it's the idea that we are somehow inferior as a man to not propose to our wives without giving her a diamond that we cannot afford, <laughs> um, and the De Beers
0: mining oh, company. Oh yes, yes. The the, the salary <laughs> guidelines, right? I mean, on what to spend. Are now it's coming back.
1: Not not just that. I mean, yes, the idea that you need to spend at least three months of your salary, but just the just the ritual that you're not actually proposing that this marriage is not legitimate unless she has a ring on her finger that has a diamond on it is, is almost become, you know, ritualized to where it almost feels like it's a law. Like, well, what do you mean you got engaged and you didn't? It's like, it's so stupid. Somebody made that up. Somebody decided to convince us that that was going to be the ultimate expression. And I don't know if you see what they're doing now. Now they're talking about the anniversary diamonds where mm, yes. if you love her twice as much you should give her a ring that's twice as big or twice as expensive. And, and it's like, I, I hate the fact, and I love the fact. As a marketer, I love the fact that we can be manipulated in this way. And as a human, I hate the fact that we allow, you know, an, a commercial purpose to motivate us and to design. And be kind of get into, even into the American dream. The American dream's in my top five. you start now, now I'm on a tangent. You start looking at the idea of coming out of World War II, we had all of this. Um, hold on, let me shut up this phone. We had all this uh, manufacturing capacity, making tanks, and they're like, what are we going to do with it? And as well, let's get people, let's make washing machines and lawnmowers and automobiles and start you know, getting people to, to consume at a rate completely unnatural to what they were. You start looking at consumer debt indexes and things like that. And that was a marketing camp. That was the U S government hiring an ad agency to invent the American dream of the two car garage with the white picket fence with your in-house appliances and all these things. And look at how effective it was. I mean, that's now the world puts America on a pedestal for this kind of quality of life. And it was marketers doing it out of necessity to sell stuff um, that is, it's amazing to me that we can do that, that, that media and, uh, marketing is that powerful.
0: Well, now Chris, you, you've done it now it's running through my head. I'm now getting nostalgic. I'm going back. I'm, I'm reliving memories of my uh, <laughs> brand experiences. And so when you talked about washing machines, now I'm coming back to Maytag, the board repairman, yeah. you know, repair person, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, the yeah. iconic characters. Yeah. Yeah. So it's out there. Great examples. And You've built this very successful agency. You're out there really helping elevate brands, but I want to turn it back to you as a leader. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received?
1: Um, I'll give you two, one more professional and one more personal. On on the professional side, um, I learned kind of around the same time I started this journey of studying cult brands that business can be more um, fulfilling than functional, and that there can be more significance than success. I think I used to think of my career as uh, a, a provider of a life of a of a of an income, you know, of making a living, and uh, and I was like, you know what? Why can't I make a life, and why can't my passions and my self sense of self worth? Also, be satisfied by what I do for a job, and I don't have to kind of endure my my eight or ten hour day, and then go and do what I really want to do. And so, I've really loved the the commingling of I'm not trying to be successful; I'm trying to be significant. And in the pursuit of that significance, I think success will be a byproduct. But um, I find a lot of joy in trying to do something that aligns with a, with an ethos beyond just the functional idea of, uh, of earning a living. And then on a personal side, I heard a quote as a child um, that for some reason I locked away and it was no amount of success will compensate for failure in the home. And I, I just think I got married young. I had children young. I, I have found that my family life is where my greatest happiness uh, resides. And so I make a lot of professional, I, I make a lot of choices that some people might consider professional sacrifices or professional hindrances. But my goal is not to, you know, uh, become the next billionaire. My goal is to have a quality of life and to prioritize the people who are closest to me. And that that's, I think, kept me uh, uh, sane and grounded.
0: Yeah, and I think, a lot of people are kind of going through that process that you were talking about of just putting things in perspective today don't you think i mean when we hear about people just consciously or, or intentionally deciding i'm going to leave this job i'm not going to just i'm not going to just stay in in a role uh, based on others perceptions they they're looking inward more right and yeah. and finding out what's truly important to them so thanks for yeah. sharing that that was pretty profound and Obviously, we're, we've are we been in the midst of the last two years of just a lot of uh, change, um, unexpected change, and just the pivoting in terms of how we live, how we work with the pandemic, impacts of all of that. But when you look to the future, Chris, what makes you optimistic?
1: You know, I think one of the positive side effects of the pandemic was a reprioritization. Um, and uh, maybe the rat race became a bit less ratty or racy <laughs> i'm not sure which one but you know i do uh, i saw some some research last summer that the number one attribute the number one most desired attribute of a leader shifted over the past 2 years and it used to deal with vision confidence elements of charisma elements of um, influence and things like that, and and what you might think of as historically, um, you know, stereotypical leadership stuff, and now the number one attribute is uh, emotional intelligence, EQ, and uh, I, I think that's a positive. I think that's a step in the right direction. We have to get off of this you know the tropes of the of leaders when i was coming up was the jack welches of the world the profit at all costs the the employees are discretionary and expendable and i think that now companies uh, are more nurturing. They're more accommodating. I think it's great for minorities. I think it's great for women in leadership. I think it's great for people that want to maybe have a non-traditional work trajectory. That you know the old regimes are giving way to new regimes, and it's kind of it could be scary or painful. You know, I'm a middle-aged affluent white male, and you know, part of me is like, well, my you know my days are numbered. The, 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 but part of me is like it was a good run. And now it's time for others to, to, to own it and to step up and to be, uh, the new role models of the future, because we kind of had one, you know, genre really again, going back to world war one and world war two, sort of this command and control, uh, old white guy kind of mentality. And I think that it's, yeah, we, we, it's age. It hasn't aged as well as it needed to. We didn't evolve as much as we should have. And, you know, you look at the Brene Browns of the world or even the Simon Sinek's. I think Simon Sinek is a middle-aged affluent white guy, but he doesn't speak like the leaders of the past. He, he speaks with, a, with an emotional intelligence and a commitment to, to human connection that is, uh, I think, very uh, appealing.
0: Well, speaking of leaders, do you have any other final suggestions for those that are looking to elevate their brands and and helping to fuel long-term growth for their companies?
1: Yeah, you know, I used to believe when I started this journey 11 years ago that all I really needed to do was expose people to what good looks like. And, and because of the way that I learn, if I can be inspired by something, if I can, you know, you go back to that idea that nobody ran a four minute mile until somebody ran it. And now in and like that same year, 20 people ran it. Like the minute you realize something's possible, then it becomes the new normal. And so I spent the early part of my journey just thinking all I needed to do was let people know that there's a thing called a cult brand and here's what they look like. What I underestimated And it goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning about losing weight or dieting. Like most people intellectually understand how to lose weight. And yet a third of Americans are overweight and a third of Americans are morbidly obese. it's like we have a, you know, two thirds of Americans are not at their ideal weight and it's not because they don't intellectually understand it. It's that they don't have the tools or the resolve Maybe, you know, there's always the exceptions of people that literally there's a medical condition behind it, but it's just, it's the, the short answer is it's hard. (laughs) It's, it's so much easier to eat unhealthy. It's so much easier to stay in bed and not go to the gym. It's so much easier to overindulge in substances or, or whatever. And it's like, I only want leaders to understand, do the hard work. Don't take the easy way out. Don't fool yourself into thinking that there's a quick you know weight loss pill and that by doing that work you'll actually not only get a better outcome but you're going to enjoy the journey you're going to feel better you're going to uh, you're going to find new uh, interests and hobbies and friends and peers and all these new mentors and coaches and all this kind of stuff and it, but it just requires very intentional very deliberate dedication to being something great. And the single biggest delta between a cult brand and a mediocre brand is not the category. It's not the resources. It's not the education. It's the commitment to, I do not want to settle for mediocre. I, wa- I want to strive for something exceptional. And those people are few and far between.
0: Yeah. I really like that because bottom line, exceptional leadership is hard work. And you you said that very clearly. Well, Chris, thanks again for coming and sharing your insights on how any brand has the potential to achieve cult-like status and the effort and the focus along the way to get there. Thanks again for coming on. Oh, you're very welcome, Dan. I really enjoyed the conversation. And a reminder to everyone to please continue to give the gift of feedback, go out, rate and review the podcast. You can do that very easily on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. Excited for the book coming out, The Impact Makers, this fall. Uh, sharing uh, these various dimensions of exceptional leadership. So stay tuned for more details on that. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.